go. Some uh, pastor came to him the other week and said, I can't believe you and Steve get the privilege of preaching after that every week. And I'm sure that uh, you guys agree. Look forward to singing that song uh, this evening. I take it we're going to be singing that one, Bree. Yeah, we will. Okay, she's excited. Six o'clock tonight, and uh, just thank you guys. Great to be back with you. Uh, Pastor Micah and I were in Southeast Asia this week. Whoever said it's a small world has never flown to Southeast Asia. <laughs> Two days on a plane is an awful long time, and uh, fighting jet lag. And so how, how did you sleep, Micah? Yeah, yeah, exactly. 12, 14 hour time difference, but it's really great to, to be back with you and really looking forward to this message. This is a, a message that has been just burning in our hearts for quite a while, and we're in week four of our series, When Things Get Toxic. Today, we're looking at when things get toxic in our city. Now, a point of clarification, we are indeed talking about city in general terms. I know the difference between incorporated and unincorporated, but we've been talking in this series about when things get toxic in ever-increasing circles, beginning with marriage, family, neighborhood. Today, I get city or town. Next week, Steve has the privilege privilege of talking about our nation, and then we look at the church after that. So when things get toxic in my city. When I was thinking about this, I realized that what we've been saying for the first few weeks is essentially, look, when things get toxic, there's often a time to walk away. But do you walk away when your city gets toxic? There's a sense in which we could point to passages like Matthew 24, for example, where Jesus paints a picture of what was coming for God's people that would cause many of them to walk away. This is what he says, Matthew 24, 16 through 20. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Why? Because have you ever tried to run when you're pregnant? That's basically his point. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter. My wife ran one winter with Amy, and uh, it was so funny. I had a breakfast appointment, and somebody came to me and said, was your wife running this morning? It was a blizzard outside, and they nearly hit her um, or hit them. Don't try and run in the winter. We all know that, right? Or it says, even on the Sabbath. Why? Because it would provoke the Jews. So clearly, th there is a time, war, maybe natural disasters, where Jesus says, look, it's understandable that you would flee from your city. Now, the reference point here is either the second coming or the uh, destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70 or possibly both of those things. So war and persecution is another one. Read the early chapters in Acts, and it becomes pretty clear that persecution of the church happened and many Christians fled. Interestingly, this fleeing was how God got the church to embrace mission to the world. But clearly then, right from the outset, we do see that there is a time when our city gets toxic that people flee. But generally speaking, that's not the norm. And indeed, there is evidence even that even when things get so toxic that a lot of people flee that many Christians decide to stay 
I remember being in seminary in London, and uh, there was Dr. Peter Cottrell, who was by far my favorite professor of everything, because he had just basically ministered in some of the most difficult conditions in the world. And I remember Dr. Cottrell telling a story about how when he was a missionary in Ethiopia, the civil war broke out and everybody was told to flee. And he got his family into a truck with his wife and his kids, and he looked at them and said, okay, I hope I will see you again, but I'm staying. I am not going to leave the people that God has called me to shepherd. His wife looked at him and said, but we've been told to leave. And he looked at her and said, honey, this is my understanding of spiritual headship. You are going. I am staying. I hope to be able to see you again. And naturally, he told the story, so he was able to flee, uh, to leave the country, and he did survive that civil war. So there are examples then of Christians fleeing when a city gets toxic, but there are also many examples of Christians staying put when it gets toxic because they want to make a difference. When I spoke about toxicity in the family a few weeks ago, I said how most of the time, it, it's not that we've got toxic people, but we've got broken people who behave toxically. And when that's the case, often what we're called to do is to establish boundaries. I think the same is generally true when it comes to toxicity in the city. There are many aspects of living in a city that isn't a theocracy. That basically means that isn't a, a city that is functioning under the rule and the reign of God and the principles of Scripture. There are many aspects of life in a city like that that we will encounter toxic things. God doesn't necessarily call us to, to flee from that. What He calls us to do, I believe, is to set boundaries for our engagement. And I think that there are two texts in the Scriptures that kind of guard us in that engagement. The first one is in Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 4 through 7. And this is what we read in this text. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses, settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increasing number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you will prosper too. Please understand that Babylon in the Scriptures is the antithesis of everything that God stands for. This is a toxic city. And God's people find themselves in a toxic city, and the question they're asking themselves is, what do we do? Jeremiah 29 has three or possibly four letters combined that the prophet Jeremiah sent to the people in Babylon, get this, as a corrective to what the religious leaders were telling them to do. The religious leaders were encouraging protestation. The religious leaders were basically saying, God is going to bring this thing down and we're going to get back home far quicker than we think. And God uses Jeremiah to say, oh no you're not, you're going to be there for 70 years. Years. So get used to it. And this 
God says through Jeremiah, is what I want you to do. I want you to seek the blessing and the prosperity of the city. Just think about that for a second. This place is the antithesis of everything God stands for. And God says through the prophet, this is what I don't want you to do. I don't want you to condemn the culture. I don't want you to take your righteous, your understandable, your correct critique so far that you find yourself pointing fingers. At the same time, God says, I don't want you to simply consume that culture, to take what it offers you with no thought about it and no engagement with it whatsoever. No, God says, I don't want you to condemn it. I don't want you to condone it. I actually want you, or to consume it, I actually want you to create a new culture. Create a new culture. You see, toxicity, God says, is dealt with through culture creation, not culture condemnation. In this climate of toxic politics and toxic policies, many Christians would do well to observe Jeremiah 29 and stop their condemnatory approach. Remember, however bad things may seem, nothing was worse than Babylon. Read Revelation if you don't believe me. Babylon stands for everything that's wrong in any city in the world. And if God says there, create a new culture, why can't he say it where he has placed us? Create a new culture. How do we do that? The verse gives us three ideas. Firstly, it says in verses five and six, let your presence be known. Personally get involved, get married. Offer your sons and daughters in marriage. Get involved in life there. Secondly, it says, let your influence grow. See, when a lot of believers start to seek the blessing of the city and the the city gets blessed, their influence starts to rise. And as their influence starts to rise, they exert more control. Why? Because they get involved. Thirdly, God says, let your prayers rise, verse 7b. In toxic cities, we prioritize positive impact. We speak out and we live out, get this, what we are for, rather than speak out and point the finger at what we are against. Please hold on to that. In this church, this text governs how we will respond to toxicity. We will not condemn culture. We will not condone culture. We will not consume culture. We will try and create a culture based on what we are for, not what we are against. The second scripture here applies to those of us who live in a town, live in Holland, and we actually really like it. I mean, what's not to like, right? Good job I didn't say it in February. Fall is right now. But what's not to like? There's so many things about Holland that it's just a great place to live. And so on the one hand, on the other side to Jeremiah 29, for those of us who find ourselves living in this town and we really don't like it, we really haven't settled with it. God says, okay, I realize what your emotions are saying, but this is what I want you to do. Be positive. 
get involved. For others of us, there is a, a correlation here or a corrective here that God wants to give those of us who actually like it here. This is what God says to us, Hebrews in chapter 13, verses 14 through 16. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others for which such sacrifices God is pleased. So there are kind of two parameters here then, right? Firstly, Jeremiah 29, hey, listen, if you're in a place, if you're in this town and you're really struggling with it, here's what God says. Get over your feelings. Your feelings may be real, but they're not necessarily true. Seek the prosperity of the city. For those of us who really like this city and like what we like life here, this is what God says. Hey, remember, this city is not your home. Your purpose here is actually to build a city that is to come. As we unpack this, I want to ask you this question. Where's home to you? Where's home to you? This week, Mike and I got off, uh, you know, got off the plane, and we're coming back on Friday, and we get off 196, and I see the sign for Holland, and I feel, wow, I'm home. It's good to be home. It's good to be home. I remember a time when I didn't feel at home. I can think of two occasions in my life where I was in a place where it didn't feel like home. The first one was when I went to seminary in London. I'm a, a guy from a small Welsh town, humble beginnings, and I remember going to this big city of London and uh, getting into college and everything else, and the first month or so, I hated it. I went home every weekend. I hated it. Did not like it at all. It was so different, so many people and so many people I didn't like. And I wrestled with it. And as I wrestled with it, God was reminding me over and over again, this is where I've called you. This is where I've called you. Engage. Engage. Second place I struggled to live was actually after Vipka and I were married. She struggled to live in Wales, so we moved to Germany. And uh, as we were in Germany, the plan was for us to work for a little bit, and then I was going to study, and then we were going to get back involved in ministry. And I tell you, they speak funny in Germany. I couldn't understand a word. I was working on a cash desk of a bank, not being able to speak a word. I would go home every day. My brain would be exploding with this language, and I think, God, what am I doing here? What am I doing here? Where's home to you? Those two experiences, London and Germany, helped me to personalize the reality that this world or wherever God has called me is not my home. Home or my home city, I'm still waiting for. I'm still working towards it. And those experiences plus the fact that we have a three-culture family, my wife is German, I'm British, and as I say, my kids are messed up. <laughs> it basically has helped me realize no matter what I feel, 
about where God has placed me. This is where God has placed me. Now it's really good that I, I really love living in Holland. But whether I feel like that or not, this is where God, God has placed you. This is where God has placed me. And God is saying, what I want you to do in the place where I have placed you is to pursue my will for this city. And this is a motive check for all of us. I think this is essentially what this means. If we seek the blessing of this city because it's ours, then that's self-interest. That's like those churches who claim that they do mission, but when you look at what mission they do, it always blesses them. It's never really sacrificial. It never really goes away. They never really leave control of what they give. If you're seeking the blessing of the city because this city is yours, then I want to tell you that's the wrong motive. If, on the other hand, we're seeking the blessing of this city because it's his, then do you know what we do? We'll do good and we will sacrifice whether we get blessed by it or not. And that's the difference here. What we work towards in a city is to see the rule and the reign of God that exists perfectly in heaven experienced increasingly on earth. What that basically means as we understand it, is what we call the five spiritual giants that hold people captive, I'll talk about that in a few moments, actually will fall in Jesus' name and people increasingly experience hope and life. That's what we're about in a city. It's not about us. It's not even about what we feel. It's actually about the rule and the reign of God that we want to be experienced increasingly on earth. And the question is, what do we need to do? How do we need to live in order to live like that? As I was thinking about this, I realized that when I read the scriptures, I can think of two characters in the Bible who lived in toxic cities, who exemplified completely different approaches to it. When our city becomes toxic or when it displays toxic tendencies, I think God is calling us to exemplify the approach of Jesus rather than Jonah. Jonah was a, a prophet. Some of you may not have spent any time in the Old Testament book of Jonah for a while, but he was in a Babylonian city of Nineveh. And as he was there, he really struggled. Jonah's approach to Nineveh was that he hated it. He wanted destruction to befall it, and he got angry when God spared it. Again, it may be a little while since you've been in Jonah, so let me summarize the book for you. In the book of Jonah, we have a storm, we have a fish, we have God, we have worms, we have wind that obey God, but a prophet who does not. We have a disobedient prophet who ends up in the belly of a large fish for three days and three nights, and amazingly, he doesn't die. And then we have a pagan king and 120,000 people who hear five words of a sermon and repent and turn to God. We have the ancient day equivalent to our nation's ultimate enemy, depending on your political persuasion, that's either Ukraine right now or Russia or China. You have the nation's enemy 
being spared because God relents from sending calamity upon them and actually gives them mercy. And then we have Jonah, the prophet, perfectly content with receiving God's mercy to spare him from death. But when that very same mercy is extended to another, even to people he doesn't like, he actually wants to die. Jonah chapter 3 and 4. And then the irony is the book ends with the most successful prophet in the entire Old Testament in terms of the fruit of his ministry. Yet at the end of the story, he is utterly lost because he's angry at God's compassion for people that he doesn't like. When it comes to toxicity of a city, we have a choice about how we react. And unfortunately, too many people react like Jonah. And what God does is God comes to Jonah and accuses Jonah of being more willing to receive mercy for his wrong than he is being willing to extend mercy for the wrong of those who are caught in the grip of sin. And what God says in the book of Jonah is that the the response of compassion for living things is more important to God than pursuing strict justice. Justice means, God's justice means, that we would receive the correct punishment for our wrong, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. That's justice. For, Moses, for Jonah's disobedience, God could have justly let him die. But no, God shows him mercy. And God says to Jonah, listen, mercy for living things, all living things, is more important to me than strict justice. God says, Jonah, I love the people of Nineveh because they are suffering under the consequence of sin. And I think this is the part that Jonah missed. Jonah simply looked at the behavior of the people and didn't go far enough back to see the motivation for that behavior, which is the controlling power of sin. And I think all too often when toxic behavior happens in a city, we are too quick to look at the behavior and not quick enough to go further back and actually think about what is controlling that behavior. Again, Central talks about this in terms of the five spiritual giants. We think that behind corruption and injustice and and, and a lot of the activity that is experienced in the heart of a city, there are spiritual giants that need to be slain. For us, there are five of them. Alienation is the first. It's this idea that people live alienated from one another because they're alienated from God. The second one is oppression. Corrupt, self-serving leaders actually make it very difficult for people to truly enter into life. Oppression. Poverty is another one, which leads to disease. Illiteracy is another one. The Bible says that knowledge brings change. And it is through a lack of knowledge that people still, uh, still suffer. The next one is injustice. People experience injustice And somebody needs to stand up and actually be the voice of the voiceless. 
behind the toxicity in a city, no matter where you look, whether you look in Holland or whether you look in Phnom Penh or Bogor in Indonesia where we were last week, these five giants are there. But all too often what we will do is we will do what Jonah does. We will simply look at the corrupt behavior and we will start to condemn people on the basis of their behavior rather than lift up our heads and start to think, wait a minute, something is driving this behavior. And when we look at the actions of people, rather than see the perspective of God, we quickly fall into the trap of condemning people rather than creating a new culture. And the question when it comes to dealing with the toxicity in a city is whether we will allow ourselves to basically see toxicity in a city from God's perspective and love the people suffering underneath it, or whether we will be quick to judgment just like the self-righteous prophet was. And when a city suffers from toxicity, what we shouldn't do is exemplify Jonah. What we should do is exemplify the attitude of Jesus. Jesus opposed what Jerusalem stood for, but he loved that city so much that he went outside of it to save it. And if you read Revelation, we read about the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem. Jesus sacrificed himself in order to create something new. What's interesting with this, of course, is when you read about Jesus' attitude to Jerusalem, on three occasions, Luke chapter 13, Luke chapter 19, and uh, Matthew chapter 23, we read Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. He weeps over it. Now, he weeps over it even though in Luke chapter 13, he basically said, you, Jerusalem, who killed the prophets... He weeps over it. He confronts the religious leaders who should have known different, but he weeps over the city. Let me read you some words from Luke chapter 19. This is what we read in Luke 19. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had known on this day what would bring you peace, but now is hidden from your eyes. And then in echoes of Matthew 24 that I read at the beginning, Jesus continues, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Notice the attitude here. He could have done this by going like this. He did that to the religious leaders. But as he looks at the city, he weeps. He knows what's coming, and he weeps. His heart is broken because of the toxicity of the city. Compare that attitude to the attitude of Jonah. There's a completely different attitude here. Jesus is in a toxic city. And Jesus knows that the only way of destroying the control of sin over that city is to be willing to sacrifice his own life in order to save it. And with toxicity rampant, Jesus sees beyond the people doing wrong to the controlling power of sin behind it and works to change that. Friends, that's the way we deal with toxicity in a city. We don't simply look at the behavior. We go further back. 
and look at the motivation on the behavior. Jesus doesn't seek to save himself from the toxicity, but he steps in to set people free from it. I think right here is, is where, quite honestly, my challenge is. As I was thinking about this, I, I thought about the time when Vipka and I were planning to move to Holland, and we realized that we needed to have a, a conversation with our two older kids, Jonas and Alec. Alec, who was playing the drums this morning, was about to enter a, a junior year of high school, and any of you who've got high school kids will realize that's a very difficult age to move someone. And we were really concerned. So we prayed about it and felt, okay, this is what God was calling us to do, so we just have to trust him. So shared this part of the story before, called Alec into a room and said, Alec and Jonas, and we said, okay, guys, um, we want to tell you something. And Alec puts up his hand and he said, Dad, before you do, I was praying, and last week God told me that I needed to prepare for a season of change and to trust him because it was going to be okay. What do you want to tell me? (laughs) Do you think that made it any easier for him? See, if God gives you a special word in a special season, it's usually for a special reason. And that special reason was, it wasn't easy. His first year was tough. And as Vivek and I are wrestling with this, right, we realize that our philosophy and approach, we're missionaries. So our, our approach is simply, if God calls us to a city, he wants us to impact that city. Not for our own sake, not for the church's sake, but for God's sake. And, and so we're wrestling with this, and we're thinking, okay, we're going to move this, this junior-aged boy into a different town. God has given a, a, a specific word, and I realized that means it wasn't going to be easy. So we're wrestling with, where do we put him in school? Now, this to you is no big deal, but for us, it was a big deal. I remember when we started to move to, uh, planning to move to the States in 2008, January 2008 is when we came to the States. So in around September, October 2007, we, start, we were living in Germany. We started getting all of these parcels from the people who were in the congregation that I would pastor in Florida. And uh, I opened it up and there was this thing called, this t-shirt called Gators. You know, blue, and they had this orange gator thing on there. And then there was Bulls, USF Bulls. Then there was Florida, and I'm like, what's all this? And then we'd have little letters asking us where we were going to put our kids in school, and what were we going to do? And this whole school thing was something, and the, the pressure around it was something that we had never experienced before, and I'm like, oh, Lord, what are we doing? Because this whole pressure around the school thing was so big. And we'd always put our kids, we never had a choice, we'd always put our kids in just a public school system. And so I'm really wrestling with this. So we decided to put the, the kids first time in a, in a Christian education, and, and we did it in order for that community, for, for Alec especially, to be developed around Christians because the move would be so difficult. But as I'm doing this, folks, I, we're really wrestling with the fact because we realize that God doesn't call us to withdraw from a city. God calls us to engage in it. And how was I going to engage in it when I was separating my kids from it? See, the problem we've got here is actually a really good problem. The Christian community in Holland is so strong that we can build our kids up and raise our kids in relative safety without exposing them to the toxicity or making a difference on the toxicity in our town. And so for five years, Vipka and I have wrestled with, if this is the choice that we have made, how do we expose our kids to the reality that they're supposed to influence the community in which we live? Just being honest, this is a wrestle. 
How, how do we do this? Because our community is so culturally Christian. Our church is so large that it is possible for us to live fine and never make an impact on the world out there. But that's not what God says. God says whether you love the city or whether you loathe the city, I want you to be a blessing to the city. Not for your sake, but for mine and for the sake of those who never, ever heard. Because, folks, if we really believe the Bible, then guess what? People are going to have to voluntarily bend the knee to Jesus in this life, or they will do it involuntarily in the next. I was in Southeast Asia this week, and, and Mike and I, uh, I think it was on Wednesday, we went to a place called Tomb City, and I've never experienced anything like this. It's just basically a city, a slum, that is built on tombstones. So you literally have the living, living with the dead. And I'm, I'm going around this place, and there are so many people there who don't know Jesus. And I find myself thinking about Hebrews 13, longing for this heavenly city, and I long for this heavenly city. Church, I cannot pray that Jesus will come back when there are hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people who've never heard. I can't. And I found myself in that moment praying, Jesus, give us one more day. Give us one more day. Give us one more day. See, let's be honest, there's a tension. When things are getting toxic in our city, the natural desire for parents is to protect our kids. And it's right. It's understandable. But what the Bible says is, listen, when things get toxic, the way we bless a city is by stepping in, not by pulling back. And we live within this tension. And it's a real tension. So what do we do? I think this is where Jeremiah 29 again helps us. It tells us two things. Firstly, it tells us the way to, to, to deal with this is to be personally involved in whatever personal involvement looks like for you. Jeremiah 29, 5 and 6, personal presence. This basically means where God has placed you in school, where God has placed you at work, where God has placed you in your neighborhood, wherever God has placed you, you basically say, God, how do you want me to extend your rule and reign in this situation? And when things get toxic, help me to balance the need to stay safe with the desire to, with the need to step in and actually be the hands and feet of Jesus. This doesn't just apply personal presence, I believe, to the communal side of it. It also applies to the, the political side of it as well. Over recent months, we have been lit up about the partial birth abortion bill. We're a pro-life church, and I recognize with a church of this size, we have people from different views, and you're welcome here, whatever your views are. But let me be clear, we are a pro-life church, and that basically means that we believe that life begins at conception and that an unborn baby is a human life. That's what we believe. And by the way, I see that with... I say that with the clear support of our elders. I believe that when it comes to things like this, about politics and policies, this is an area where we should be personally involved. 
And if you'd like to take a stand on that in Michigan, and you can impact upcoming legislation on partial birth abortion simply by getting in contact with Right to Life in Michigan, for example, and they can send you a petition that you can sign in return. And uh, that's urgent because December is the deadline. But this is an example of personal involvement. That is your right as a citizen of this state. It is a right as a citizen of this city. It is a responsibility that you have to live out what is true. But notice I've said that's a personal thing. That's a personal way that we can step in. I don't believe that that is the way that the organization steps in. So despite a lot of people saying, are we going to do petitions in the lobby? We're not going to allow our church to come into that kind of organizational political movement. Because Jeremiah 29 doesn't tell us that that's the right way to do it. That comes over as condemnation, not as culture creating. That doesn't mean to say that we don't stand up and preach what is true. Next year, just after Easter, Steve and I are planning to do a series called It's Complicated, where we will tackle a number of the issues that often divide us, and we will seek to do that on the basis of what the Bible says clearly to be true. We're going to be unapologetic about stating what we believe the Bible says. But that doesn't mean to say that we believe that the right response is to turn the church into a political movement. That is not the right response because it alienates the very people that God calls us to reach. So personally, we step up. But organizationally, we get involved too. That's this whole idea of let your influence rise. Think about this. There were Christian business leaders years ago who God blessed and prospered. And what did they do? They turned around, looked at this city and said, how can we invest in this city to actually bless it? A lot of the renovations in downtown Holland come as a result of that. Or think about this church when, when our town was suffering with gang violence. What did they do? They introduced the, the core cities project where they encouraged many of you to move in. This is influence. This is how we as an organization can just mobilize and as Christian community can mobilize and bless the city. There are a number of ways that we are doing that right now and I want to just introduce three of them to you. Firstly, I'd encourage you to pray for Pastor Mike. Mike sits on the, the board of the Holland Public Schools, but he's also sitting on the board with other Christian leaders talking about how we can mobilize the Christian community in Holland to tackle significant issues that we believe will see some of these giants fall. Now, I hope all of you realize it's not easy to mobilize churches who have different opinions on certain things around a common goal. That isn't easy at all. And often what will happen is the end product will usually be a talking shop or a conference that costs $100,000 or hundreds of thousands of dollars that makes no difference to the people that we're trying to minister to. But pray for these leaders. What is going on right now is that you've got Christian leaders, churches, putting besides the differences, focusing on the fact that we all believe the hope and life come through Jesus, and they're meeting together to say, what can we do to bless the town? That's the way we organize. We stand up for what we are for. And we act on that. Secondly, pray for our network. Our vision is to empower local leaders leading local churches in strategic places around our city, around our nation, and around our world. In our, in our own state, we've 
got a church overflow in Benton Harbor. Benton Harbor is a, is a diverse community. The median income in Benton Harbor is $17,000 a year. There is poverty there. And yet God is using Overflow Church and Pastor Brian to make a dramatic impact on that community. And the same is true in the other places we're ministering around our nation and around our world. Pray for that. Pray that we will have wisdom about how we organizationally, as a family of churches, organized together to bless those people that never have heard the gospel in the places where our churches are. That's why we're doing the network. Thirdly, there's our work with families in crisis, even in our own city. We do that through Celebrate Recovery, hand-to-hand, Kids Help, Mosaic, to name but three of the organizational ways that we're responding to families in crisis. Another way we do that is through the Christmas store. In a couple of weeks, we'll do our annual Christmas store, about 400 families who, without our support, would really struggle to make Christmas a blessing for their families, are able to do it because all of you step up and provide the gifts for them to purchase at a really reduced fee. I think it's $5 is all they paid to come. Pray for that. Even last year, some people came in, and through that simple act, Many of them were willing to give their lives to Jesus Christ. And we've got people sitting in this room today who've come to Christ as a result of it. So what can we do? We get involved personally where God has placed us. We, we balance safety with involvement. We recognize that when it comes to policies, it's our personal responsibility to step up and to get involved. And as a church, we look around at what these giants are, and we develop a plan to actually see the giants fall in Jesus' name. That's what we do. And what I would encourage you to do is to realize that whether you like it here or whether you loathe it here, God has placed you here. Put your feelings to one side. And try as best as you can to live every single day saying, God, how do you want to use me to extend your rule and your reign in this corner of the city where you have placed me? And if we all live like that, then I believe that revival can come on our city. That's the way it works. We get personally involved, we influence, and lastly, we pray. Why don't we just wrap up our service by doing that right now? Just praying for our city, praying for the leaders. We had a mayoral election this week, praying for the leaders of the city. And let's just pray that God would use them and use us to bring more people the hope and life of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for the town in which you've called us to live. There are so many ways that we've been blessed. And so, Father, whether we like it here or whether we struggle with living here, we thank you that you've called us to be here. And, Father, when things get toxic in our city, I pray that you would give us the wisdom to balance safety with the willingness to sacrifice for the good of others. We pray for those in leadership in this city. And God, we pray that you would bless and guide them. And God, I pray that you would also give us the conviction to be willing to stand up personally for what is right and true in a way that honors and glorifies you. 
and extends your kingdom in the corner of our city that you've placed us. God, I thank you for the moves that are happening in the churches across this city that are communicating and, and trying to work to see what you would have us do as a group of churches with a capital C, your church. It's bigger than any single local church. God, I pray for wisdom. I pray that you would help us know what it is that we're called to do and what it is that we're called to leave behind. And God, we do all of these things because we seek above anything else to experience your rule and your reign increasingly experienced in this town just as it is in heaven. Give us the courage. Give us the boldness. Give us the faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.